What's up, Stitches? Are you all ready to get into Famous Authors Who Stitched Part 2? Well, here we go. Last episode was all about Jane Austen's stitchery, and this one is about the Bronte sisters. I'm going to discuss the Bronte sisters' samplers, as well as an unfinished quilt top they collaborated on. At the end, I'm going to go a bit ham on some of Charlotte Bronte's stuff specifically. And like always, images and sources are on the So What social media platforms at So What Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You know the drill. I should start off by saying the Bronte family had a really crappy go of things. They had a super rough time, and you're about to see why. We all know Charlotte, Emily, and Anne Bronte, who were all published novelists. Charlotte's most famous work is Jane Eyre, and Emily's is Wuthering Heights. Anne is the least famous, but her books Tenant of Wildfell Hall and Agnes Grey are still read today. But the sisters had three other siblings, two of whom died in childhood and the third of whom was a super drunken mess. Their mother, Mariah Branwell, died of uterine cancer at 38 years old, when her children were just 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, and 1 year old. Also, before I go on, let me just say the name is spelled Maria, M-A-R-I-A, but at the time, that would have been pronounced Mariah. I can't find exactly when Maria and Mariah became different names, but Maria was definitely pronounced Mariah in the 19th century, so I'll be calling the members of the Bronte family with that name by that pronunciation. Okay, now that we've covered that, let's go on. Mariah, the oldest Bronte child, caught tuberculosis while at school and died at 11 years old in 1825. Elizabeth, the second oldest child, had the same thing happen to her. She died at 10 years old less than six weeks after her older sister died. Ugh, how grim, how sad, ugh. And beyond that, the family's only son, known as Branwell, became addicted to alcohol and opium and died when he was 31. The Bronte children I'll be focusing on today, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, also died really young. Emily died at 30 in December of 1848, and Anne died less than six months later at 29. Charlotte died at 39, which is super young by our standards, but pretty good in comparison to the rest of her family. Their father, Patrick Bronte, outlived his wife and all of his children. He cut up Charlotte's letters and sent snippets to admirers who wanted samples of Charlotte's handwriting. From start to finish, the tale of the Bronte family is so dang bleak. I mention this deep level of bummer in the Bronte family not just for context or because their novels are full of, like, straight-up despair of Victorian life, but also because the childhood samplers of the Bronte gals are really imbued with that intense grimness. The girl samplers, which I'm about to discuss, are simple and stark and just a bit sad, especially when compared to all the fun, really decorative samplers that were being made at the same time. The melancholy of their early stitching clearly mirrors their pretty melancholy lives, to put it simply and a bit sadly and bluntly. Oof! Okay, let's start with these samplers. All five of the Bronte sisters made samplers. Mariah and Elizabeth, the two eldest sisters who died real young, made one sampler each, and Charlotte, Emily, and Anne each made two needlework samplers. The Bronte samplers lack any motifs and instead have several bands of really simple patterns, the maker's name, the date, and a series of Bible verses. Mariah and Elizabeth completed their samplers on the 18th of May and the 22nd of July, 1822. Charlotte completed her first sampler on the 25th of July, 1822, and her second on the 1st of April, 1828. 
Emily finished hers on the 22nd of April, 1828, and the 31st of March, 1829, and Anne finished hers on the 28th of November, 1828, and the 23rd of January, 1830. Okay, I know that is a lot of confusing dates. Thank you for sticking with me through that. Each of the girl's first samplers is a roughly 10-inch square, and her second is a larger rectangle. The samplers have several geometric bands at the top, which include little zigzags and waves. These samplers look positively Victorian, for lack of a better word, even though none of them were actually made in the Victorian period at all. But they're really stark and simple and a bit sad in their lack of color and design. But the lack of that stuff does make sense. These gals were getting down to business, learning to stitch letters and numbers that they and other 19th century gals would use to mark linens and complete plain sewing tasks for like the rest of their lives. The larger second samplers showcase an increase in sewing skills. More linen creates more room for a girl to display her neat and even stitching. The Bronte gals stitched verses from the Bible as well as their names and the dates they finished their samplers. These bigger samplers are bordered by a pattern that looks like if a Greek key pattern had teeth. Look at the pictures on the Sew It social media to get what I'm saying because I don't really know how else to describe them. So I'm going to focus on the first set of samplers, the square ones, because their similarities and variations illustrate really well the relationship between text and stitching, as well as the effects of events and emotions on sewn objects. The first samplers made by each of the Bronte sisters display not only the religious tenets and sewing techniques they were taught, but also the effects of death and mourning. The five sister square samplers are really similar in design, shape, and content, but can be separated into two groups based on thread color and choice of Bible verses. Mariah, Elizabeth, and Charlotte must have made their samplers together, as they were all finished in mid-1822, and all of them used the same now-faded dark brown thread. Given the similar dates and content and presumed economy of teaching three students at once, we can assume that Mariah, Elizabeth, and Charlotte were taught to sew as a group. These three samplers, as well as Emily and Anne's later examples, all feature the same five bands of geometric designs, the bottom two being variations on a wave or Greek key pattern, under which are bands consisting of an uppercase alphabet, counting numbers, and a lowercase alphabet. As I alluded to earlier, these simple designs and text indicate a pretty conservative upbringing. The sampler simplicity, with their single-colored thread and lack of ornament, reflects the Brontes' moral and religious upbringing as children of a clergyman. Yes, Patrick Bronte was in the church. The emphasis on letters on the samplers was in preparation for being wives and mothers, who, in the 19th century, were expected to sew the initials of family members onto clothing and linens. The square Bronte samplers were made during two distinct time periods, 1822 and 1828. Between those two dates, both Mariah and Elizabeth died. The later group of samplers shows how childhood mortality and mourning affected the surviving Bronte's lives and stitchery. While Mariah, Elizabeth, and Charlotte's samplers feature dark brown thread that has since faded to a lighter brown, Anne and Emily's samplers use black. This is likely a result of the elder sister's deaths three years before Anne and Emily's samplers were completed, because in 19th century England, mourning of close family members required individuals to wear only black clothing and to use specific mourning goods for several years. This black thread used in Anne and Emily's samplers may indicate that in 1828 the family was still in formal mourning, or at least still deeply heartbroken. 
Perhaps also, the sisters used black in homage to the earlier samplers, echoing their older sisters' patterns and format while mourning that they would never stitch again. How sad, right? Ugh, oof, it just oof, makes me so sad. All of the square Bronte samplers, except Emily's, include Bible verses. After Elizabeth and Mariah's deaths, the verses' subject matter shifts from moral and wise human behavior to death and the power of God. While it's not clear whether Aunt Branwell, who instructed the girls in sewing after their nurse made Sarah Gars left, or the individual Bronte girls picked the Bible verses for their samplers, there is a really noticeable change in mood and content between the two sets of the samplers. Now we're going to get into specific Bible verses so we can see what I'm saying. Elizabeth Bronte's sampler includes the verse, quote, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy wisdom get understanding, end quote. Mariah's says, quote, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is of a hasty spirit exalteth folly, end quote. And Charlotte says, quote, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life, end quote. While these verses, most of which do not mention God, are meant to instruct the reader, or in this case the stitcher, on how to live a good, successful life, the verses in Anne's sampler focus on God and death. Her sampler includes the verses, quote, It is better to trust in the Lord, Lord in all caps, than to put confidence in man, end quote, and, quote, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his, end quote. Her first verse suggests a sense of defeat and uncertainty, implying that to Anne and the rest of the grieving Bronte family left without their two eldest daughters and their mother, mortality is unpredictable. With the death of two siblings just a month apart, the Bronte family must have wondered why they had been dealt such a cruel fate. Anne confronts this unpredictability by putting her faith and confidence in God. The second verse included in her sampler explicitly mentions death, clearly indicating that even six years after the loss of Mariah and Elizabeth, death was on the minds of the remaining family members. If, according to the Brontes, death is fickle and always ready to strike, then it's sensible that at least one's death should be noble. These verses, in addition to indicating changes in the Bronte family's behavior and outlook, suggests that Anne was the most religious of the Bronte sisters. A woman named Deborah Lutz confirms this in a book called The Bronte Cabinet. Anne's capitalization of the word Lord could be more than just a stylistic choice. It may also indicate her love of and devotion to God and Christianity. In the Bronte samplers, as well as in needlework generally, text is often more than just a design element or for refining one's sewing skills. The chosen texts reflect a woman's opinions and reactions to events in her own life and the world around her. It's like I always say, it's the power of stitching. It's so clear. Now I'm going to keep talking about the inscriptions. I'm sure you're at this point like, shut up, Isabella, this is boring. I hope you're not. The inscriptions in these samplers really tell us a lot about the girls. Anywho, okay, the inscriptions that include the objects, maker, and date of production differ between the two groups of samplers. The earlier group of samplers include a statement that is kind of difficult to explain in words, but I'm going to try. It's essentially a formula that says the sampler maker's name, so if my name is Anne Bronte, it'll say Anne Bronte, finished this sampler the date, so let's say I finished it uh, the 1st of January, 1830, then I'd say... Anne Bronte finished this sampler the 1st of January, 
And then the formula goes on to say, at the age of blank years. So let's say I'm 11. None of this is right, but here we go. I would essentially say on my sampler, Anne Bronte finished this sampler the 1st of January, 1830, at the age of 11 years. The second group of samplers has an easier formula. It essentially is maker finished the sampler date. So let's say uh, it's me. Isabella Rosner finished this sampler 2nd of July, 2020. Here are some actual examples. Charlotte Sampler states, quote, Charlotte Bronte finished this sampler the 25th of July at the age of six years, end quote. While Emily says, quote, Emily Jane Bronte, colon, finished this sampler April the 22nd, 1828, end quote. This change was not Emily or Aunt Branwell's attempt to create more room on the sampler for designs or inscriptions, since Emily does not include any additional verses or patterned bands. There is this shift from including the maker's age to instead including the exact date, which is perhaps a reaction to Mariah and Elizabeth's early deaths. The later samplers, with their inclusion of calendar year rather than the age of their makers, indicate a need to document a specific moment in time. The early samplers, with displays of the virtuistic sewing skills of the very young Bronte girls, Mariah was eight years old and Elizabeth seven when they made their samplers, are made poignant by their deaths less than three years after they stitched their samplers. Pride in skilled stitching at such a young age turns into sadness. By chronicling time rather than age, the younger Bronte sisters made their samplers less personal. That might be a really bold statement, but I spent a really long time studying these samplers, and that is how I made sense of the change in inscriptions, which is very notable. Anyway, so those are my thoughts on the Bronte samplers. Or rather, those were my thoughts when I wrote my undergrad dissertation a few years ago, but I stand by everything I wrote, honestly. I spent a lot of time thinking about their samplers, and I do think the sadness of childhood death is really present in the samplers Emily, Anne, and Charlotte made after Mariah and Elizabeth died. When I first saw images of the samplers, they struck me as representing a lot of the sadness and dourness and moral uprightness of the Victorian era, even though they're technically not at all Victorian because the Victorian era started in 1837. Okay, that is that on my long sampler monologue. Hope you stuck with me through that. Anyway, onto their quilt. Charlotte, Emily, and Anne Bronte made a quilt in the early or mid-1840s. The quilt, which is a cute 74 inches by 84 inches, is unfinished. Let me get into a description of the object. It's made of a variety of silks, cottons, taffetas, and velvets in an array of bright and pale tones. While most of its fabric pieces are unpatterned, there are instances of plaids, checks, stripes, and small geometric and floral motifs. According to the Bronte Parsonage Museum's online catalog, the quilt is backed onto cloth and appears to still contain bits of the original newspaper pattern templates and some batting. The quilt features a center medallion that resembles a flower with 19 petals bordered by small rhombuses, rhombi, I guess, I'm not sure, and hexagons. The medallion is framed by a pattern made up of white squares on a light pink ground, which itself is framed by a stretch of taupe fabric dotted with rhombi, I'm gonna stick with rhombi, yes, hexagons and crescent shapes. The central pattern expands into a series of interlocking hexagons on all four sides, which creates a stylized floral pattern. This pattern is bordered by a strip of squares and triangles, followed by another border of rectangular pieces. 
Hexagonal patterns were common in 19th century quilts, even taught to girls in some schools that included quilt making in their curriculums. Hexagonal patterning was sometimes called honeycomb in the early decades of the 19th century, with the earliest honeycomb quilts being made in England in the 1780s. The Bronte quilt, filled with wool batting and backed with a sheet of cotton, was intended to keep its user warm in cold Yorkshire winters. The pieced front, batting, and plain back of the quilt were sewn together with stitching in patterns of diagonals, crescents, chevrons, and hearts. The quilt top is, in comparison to the Austin quilt I talked about last episode, definitely not as expertly designed or sewn. Like the Austin quilt, the origins of the Bronte quilt's fabric scraps point to larger communities of sisterhood and networks of female friendship available to women. The Bronte quilt's scraps of fabric most likely came from the family's clothing, snipped from both old, worn-out dresses and scraps left over from making dresses, outerwear, and shirts and vests for Branwell and their father. The fabrics were probably already owned by the family instead of bought or collected from others, since ample fabric remained after making clothing for the six Bronte women, including the late Elizabeth Mariah and their mother, Mariah Branwell. The quilt, made by a trio of sisters, is constructed from the textile remnants of a large, female-heavy family tree. Now, the paper template used in the Bronte quilt is made of newspaper. For those of you not familiar with quilt making, in the 19th century and 18th century, what women did was essentially make the design of the quilt in paper. The paper was then covered by fabric and sewn from there. The paper gave the quilt stability as well as an understanding of how the pattern kind of fit together. Okay, so the Bronte quilt paper template was made out of newspaper, a material whose flimsiness would have made it difficult to wrap with fabric pieces. So what I'm thinking is perhaps the Brontes used such unsuitable material for their templates because they reserved sturdier, more durable paper for its blank margins, which they used for writing. In their childhood, the Bronte siblings repurposed whatever paper they came across, using wallpaper, paper that wrapped packages, and newspapers to create book backings for their handcrafted books. They spent their lives writing bits of text in the margins of other authors' books. Why didn't they use newspaper in the same way? Well, it may be because newspaper cannot withstand additional ink, and it's too insubstantial to preserve writing over long periods of time, making it difficult for the sisters to refer to their early marginalia years later. Clearly, the sisters were willing to use a more difficult template material to preserve as much suitable writing paper as possible. To them, writing paper was precious. And, now this is something I talked about in the last episode with the Austin quilt, but one of the reasons I'm really fond of the Bronte quilt is that it's easy to imagine the sisters sitting together and talking through their book ideas as they stitched. It's not known exactly when this quilt was made, so it's impossible to say what Charlotte, Anne, and Emily were writing, but it's really heartwarming to think about the sisters bouncing ideas off of each other as they sewed. For the Brontes, as well as Jane Austen, stitching and writing went pretty hand in hand. And those are my thoughts on the Bronte quilt. Now I want to talk a bit about Charlotte Bronte's stitching specifically. When Charlotte's mahogany and brass writing desk was acquired by the Bronte Parsonage Museum in 1944, the desk's contents had been untouched since her death in 1855. Inside the desk lay at least four collar patterns and three cuff patterns, utilizing embroidery and lace-making techniques. And they were nestled amongst a map of Oxford, steel pen nibs, French books, a swatch of silk that was probably part of one of Emily's dresses, a lock of Anne's hair, a homemade valentine, and writing fragments. 
These collar and cuff patterns are decorative rather than practical, using stitchery as an expressive medium instead of just as a means to create necessary objects. Now, in addition to embroidering floral collars, Charlotte designed lace collars, displaying mastery in multiple forms of decorative needlework. There's a drawing in the Bronte Parsonage Museum collection that's a drawing of a complete collar with a plain body surrounded by lines of embroidered designs and lace edging. It's precisely the right size for Bronte. At 13.3 inches, it would have fit snugly around her neck and would accompany dresses with higher necklines. When I first wrote my dissertation, I had to do a lot of weird research on neck circumferences for that, but Charlotte was a tiny lady, so all of the measurements made sense. What I'm saying is the design isn't an approximation, but rather an exact guide for how Charlotte wanted her stitches and lace to look. She drew the design on the back of a piece of mourning paper, suggesting that someone close to her had recently died. Which is not surprising given that everybody died. She most likely made this collar design while mourning the deaths of Branwell, Emily, and Anne, who all died within eight months of each other, making it possible to date this collar pattern to after the 24th of September, 1848, the date of Branwell's death and the beginning of what would become the Bronte family's extended period of mourning. As Emily died on the 19th of December in the same year, and Anne died on the 28th of May the following year, both of tuberculosis, ugh, so sad. Charlotte seemed to have used needlework to comfort herself, using design as solace in the face of devastating loss. Decorative sewing was not just an enjoyable pastime for Bronte, but also a form of escape and necessary distraction. And that is what I have to say on the needlework of the Bronte sisters. My conclusion is a lot like last week's conclusion, that it's really exciting and wonderful to get to know these women through not only their words, but also their stitching. I really love the idea of Charlotte and Emily and Anne sitting together and stitching, talking and gossiping and arguing and whatever else. They had obviously really sad childhoods, but decades later in adulthood, they came together and made this colorful, beautiful quilt top. It's a world away from the really stark, somber samplers of their youths. These women rose up from sadness and sickness and loss and death and created bright, beautiful things with their pens and their needles. Their stitching went from being dark and monochrome to being a mishmash of vibrant colors, and I think this sounds stupid, but I just think it's really lovely. There's obviously nothing deep or philosophical to that. They're just women whose lives got a bit brighter, and that is wonderful to see. So yeah, that's it. That was part two of my exploration of authors who stitched. Like always, thanks for listening to me essentially just geek out for like 20 minutes. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe, follow on social media, rate, review, tell your friends, do whatever about so what. I want the world to know about historic needlework. Please and thank you. Now go out and once we have a coronavirus vaccine, go visit Jane Austen's house in Chawton, Hampshire, and the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Howarth, Yorkshire. Bye!